Hi, this is John DeLynn. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mormon Stories Podcast. As you may know, Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the financial contributions from you, its listeners. To help keep Mormon Stories going, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. You can do so by clicking on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the website. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Any discussion of women in the LDS Church would be incomplete without first understanding a bit about the history of women more broadly within the context of 19th and 20th century America. Consequently, in part two of this multi-part series on women in the LDS Church, we will hear from an LDS woman who also teaches women's studies at a Division I university in the United States. She will discuss the three major faces of feminism in the United States— trace its history from the mid-1800s to today, and will conclude with her own reflections about being an LDS woman in 2007. We hope that this will set the stage for the rest of the episodes on LDS women, and most importantly, we hope that you enjoy the discussion. And thanks again for listening. Well, Seraphine, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Mormon Stories. Um, well, thanks for having me. Now, to begin, it probably makes sense for us to explain why we're using a handle or Seraphine, because I assume that's not your real name. Is that right? No, it's not. So, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, a little bit about yourself, who you are, um, and uh, why we're using a handle. Okay, um, I am a. Uh graduate student um, at a university. I study, um, I'm getting my degree in English, um, and I prefer to use a handle online um, just because I'm about, I'm about to go on the job market in the next couple years, and um, I tend to not put personal information online that can, people can look up when it comes to, because they'll they'll look stuff up when it comes to job, job search stuff. But it's fair to say you teach women's studies at a major Division One university. Yes. yes, I do. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your history, and what led to your interest in women's studies. Um. Well, it it it, it developed in college. I mean, I was I was actually um, growing up. I was you know pretty conservative. I, I mean, I was one of the people that sort of thought you know feminists were scary and and all of that. Um, and I hit college, and I actually um, didn't take any women's studies classes as an undergraduate. Um, but I took a bunch. I took a bunch of English classes where we studied um, what's called critical theory, which is sort of um, you know how people go go about studying literature. And, and one of the things that I talked about in my theory classes we talked about in our theory classes was was feminist theory. And so I sort of got introduced to feminism through English classes. Um, and it was, I mean, probably the class that really stands out to me the most um, is I took a postmodernism class. 
Um, and we actually read an article um, where a woman um, talks about her experiences as part of second wave feminism and sort of, um, it, was, it was an article sort of about divides within second wave feminism and how feminists were sort of arguing with one another about various issues. And I remember reading this, this article and my mind was just sort of like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I sort of had this conception that feminism was this one thing and I, I read it and was like, you know, this is, this is a movement that is a lot more, um, there are a lot more differences of opinion. There's, there's a lot more stuff going on here than I really realize. Um, and, and kind of about the same time, I was sort of, um, because of others, other things that were going on in my life um, sort of separately, I was sort of becoming increasingly sort of, I don't know, dissatisfied. Um, like I, I, was, I was sort of having a, having a crisis at the beginning of college about being a woman and wanting to be in academia and feeling... Um, really wrong about doing that because I had been told so, you know, over and over again, you know, your mission is, you know, to be a mother and have children. And I just loved school. And, you know, for a long time, I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, and so when I was in college, I was sort of having to deal with that. Um, and, and I, when I started investigating feminism, you know, I started finding a language to sort of talk about this, this crisis I was going through in college. Um, and it, kind of solidified altogether. And, and, and apart from the, the conflicts about uh, being a woman and, and maybe wanting to pursue academia, was your experience in the church otherwise positive and healthy and productive? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've you know, it's, I, I mean, I've, you know, I've had, you know, sort of, ex, you know, experiences as a woman that have been slightly, slightly frustrating, but in, in general, I mean, i um, you know, grew up, you know, in an LDS home, and, and my parents are loving parents, really supportive, um, you know, basically said, you can do anything you want to, you know, they were super encouraging of me to, to pursue my education and go to graduate school, and um, for the most part, I've been in really, you know, pretty healthy boards that have functioned well and, you know, not caused huge problems in my life, and um, so... In, in general, I've had, um, a, for the most part, a positive experience at the church. So, yeah. And, and before we jump into the to the main topics, uh, I guess we should give a shout out to the blog to which you contribute. Is that right? You want to tell us a little bit about that and uh, what? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm a member of a blog. It's called The Lofahead's Daughters. Um, it was started um, by uh, my my best friend, her sisters, and myself, kind of, we had a number, a few of us had been sort of lurking on the blogger knackle um, for a while, and we sort of got the idea that we should start a blogger. I think they, my, my best friend and her sister sort of came up with the idea, and they came, and they said, hey, do you want to be part of it? And I was like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Um, and our, our blog is primarily, um, I mean, we, we do a variety of topics, but the, the issues that tend to come up again are sort of um, academic and feminist issues. Right. Um, so yeah, that's sort of our niche on the blogger Nackle is the academic feminist blog. <laughs> and it's a pretty popular blog, one of the more reputable ones from from what I've experienced. So shout out to all our uh, all our I won't say girls, so I'll say our Zalova had daughters uh, women out there. Yes, w- women. <laughs> <laughs> And I've met at least one of them uh, in addition to you. So, 
Yeah, yeah. Hello, Kiss Galili, or however <laughs> however she pronounces it. Uh, I know her. I'm by, not sure that. <laughs> I know her by her real name. Okay, great. So uh, I'll have to confess, I have much uh, to repent for and much shame that I've gone through like 52 or 53 episodes uh, of Mormon Stories podcast, and I've never covered uh, women's women's issues directly. Uh, I I uh, I deserve scorn and rebuke for that delay. Um, and, and well, it, the fact it, that you're doing it at all is is great. Well, isn't it isn't it so classic though? I mean, you, one of the things that I often think of as I ponder the you know the state status of women in the United States is you know we celebrated uh, black men being able to to vote. In what, 1864, 1865, something like that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember the exact date, but yeah, it was, it was in the 1860s. And it, and it wasn't, and so we pat ourselves in the back, hooray. It was another 50 years or 45 years until women could vote no, in this country. It was another 60 years. 60 years, It was 1920. Yeah, yeah was 1920. so, <laughs> so uh, crazy that, that women, not only in the United States, but here on Mormon Stories, are often... The afterthought. And I don't think that we often enough take enough time to think about that. So the purpose of this podcast is to give our LDS friends out there some context for this series on, on women's issues in the church. I will give you all this disclaimer that uh, virtually none of what we have planned today is going to cover Mormonism at all. Instead, we're going to sort of paint a context of, of the, the plight or the struggle or the successes of women within the United States over the past uh, few hundred years. And um, and from there, uh, we're going to then have established a context for the future episodes. So, uh, you know, and I'll just say, I, I didn't even know that feminism had waves. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the three waves of feminism. I didn't learn this until a few months ago talking to Roasted Tomatoes, also on the Blogger Knackle, when she started telling me about the different waves of feminism. I had no idea. So that's that's how most people most people when they talk about feminism and the history of feminism talk about it in terms of waves. It's sort of the easiest way to talk about it. So with that, let's launch in. Tell us uh, tell us about the early years of feminism or of of you know women's rights or or the or the struggle for for women here in the United States. Okay. Well, it 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 started. I mean, the really the Kind of first wave feminism and in, in the early early years of first wave feminism was um, in in the 1840s, um, and it it started um, with I mean kind of the the central figure at that point um, was a woman named Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, and she and other women um, at the time were involved in the abolitionist movement, so they were trying to get rid of slavery. Um, and they, you know, they were going to conventions, and um, what happened was that um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton went to a um, uh, a huge uh, anti-abolition. Um, uh, she went to a convention, the International Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840, and she went with Lucretia Mott. And Lucretia Mott was a delegate um, for her local. Um, society. Um, and what happened when they got to the convention is that they were not allowed to sit with the men. Um, they weren't allowed to speak. They had to actually sit so that the men couldn't see them. Um, and 
they were really, really bothered by this because, you know, here were these women who in their local communities were really um, working hard on this issue and they go to this convention and they're effectively silenced and, and not able to represent their, you know, their own, you know, the, the chapters that they were coming from. Right. So I, that was, I think, kind of the start. Um, a lot of people point to that as sort of the start of, of Stanton's sort of um, um, interest in sort of uh, of women's rights. And, and what happened after that is she went back. She was um, she lived in Seneca Falls, New York, um, and she went back to Seneca Falls, New York, um, and she she had actually just gotten married right before the convention that she went to. And she went back to Seneca Falls, New York, and she um, started having children. Um, and she was very, I mean, up to that point in time, she had traveled a lot. She had been part of sort of intellectual communities. Um, and she ended up in this small, small town with not a lot of um, people to talk to, raising these children and sort of going, ah, you know, my life is really different now. And it's, it's a lot harder. You know, I, I don't have the, the intellectual stimulation that I used to. Raising these children is really hard. And she started really sort of paying attention to women's lives in a really more general way and sort of saying, you know what, women's lives are really difficult. You know, there's a lot of really awful things that women have to deal with. And she sort of thought about this for a few years. Um, and in 1848, she got together with um, a handful of women in the community, um, including Lucretia Mott. Um, and what, they ended up deciding to hold a women's rights convention um, and, and, what, and they also drafted um, a Declaration of Sentiments, which they read at the convention, which is sort of a, a declaration sort of saying, you know, here's how women are unequal and here are the things that we're going to work for. Um, and they, it, it, this was really, I think, kind of the start of the women's rights movement um, where, um, was, was this convention that was held in Seneca Falls in, in 1848. Okay. Um, so. Okay. So, um, so the the wheels start turning a bit. Um, so, I mean, if you want, I can. I, I've got some statements here about some of the some of the things that the the declaration sort of talked about. I mean, if you want me to. Um, yeah, talk a bit about what the major issues were, what the major demands were, or, or issues were, if you can. Okay. And um, yeah, um, if you can, just paint the life of a of a woman uh, in the United States in the mid eighteen hundreds compared okay. to what it's like today. Okay. Well, um, what's 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 what I love about the Declaration of Sentiments. I mean, the Declaration of Sentiments is it's something that I think everyone should go read. Um, it, it reads like it starts out like the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, except it goes on to say that it says that all men and women are created equal. Mm. So they sort of modeled it after the, the um, you know, the Declaration of Independence to sort of get people's attention. Right. And what, and what they do is they go through um, kind of a list of injustices, sort of saying these are all the problems with our lives. Um, and, you know, you know, looking back on it, it's, it's sort of really shocking um, you know, to me to look back on this document, um, women, you know, obviously at that time women weren't able to vote. Um, you know, women were not able to, um, there were there were lots of barriers for women owning property. 
for example, when a, a woman got married, um, all her property was transferred to her husband, including, you know, if she worked at a job, like let's say she was a teacher, all of those wages that she made at a job would be given to her husband. Mm. It would be her husband's property and not her property. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, if a woman ended up getting divorced from a husband, all of the property that were, was hers before she got married would no longer be hers. It would be her husband's even after the divorce. Um, wow. Yeah. I, you know, women were completely under the power of their husbands. I mean, if you, um, if you had an abusive husband, you were, you know, you were in trouble because um, husbands could abuse their wives and, and not have any, not really face any consequences. You know, men could rape their wives, beat their wives, um, you know, without getting in trouble. Um, uh, one thing that the Declaration of Sentiments points out that I thought was, was interesting that I didn't realize, um, if a woman committed a crime and her husband was there, um, she was in the company of her husband, he would be, the, he would be responsible for the crime and not her. Oh. So women didn't even have rights of sort of, you know, respons- you know, women weren't even held, you know, responsible or accountable for their own actions in, in some situations. Um, um, you know, women, uh, they were very, very limited in terms of also, like, education and professions. Um, women were not um, accepted, like, women could not attend um, colleges. And at this point in time, I mean, there were women's colleges that started up later, but at this point in time, there was probably one, maybe two women's colleges that were really small. Um, so women couldn't pursue education at a college um, women couldn't pursue most professions. There were only a couple of professions that were acceptable for women. Um, and when they did work, um, their wages were vastly, vastly um, less than, than the men who were doing the same work as they were. Um, so, um, you know, it's women, you know, women, you know, really had a hard time. And really your happiness in life um, sort of depended on, how lucky, you know, how lucky you managed to get in the person that you, with the person you married, you know. Right. If you managed to marry someone who was good to you and, and supportive of you, then you probably had a pretty happy life, you know. But if you married someone who was abusive, who beat you, you know, you really, um, really had no recourse. If you decided to divorce your husband because he was beating or raping you, you had no property, he would get guardianship of your children, you'd be shunned by society, um, so, you know, your happiness was sort of really dependent on how nice your husband was, and that obviously wasn't a guarantee. Now, this is going to sound absurd, but I'm just asking it anyway. I've heard people, you know, discuss slavery and, and sort of glorify slavery and say, well, you know, the slaves had it pretty good, believe it or not, on the plantation. Um, could somebody make an argument that even though women had all these restrictions, you know, overall they were still happier because they had a, an identity and a known place and a specific role and and men really were pretty kind overall and so in in reality even though this sounds all restrictive that women actually had a pretty good and are probably are, were net happier than they were today i mean it's an absurd question but i'm just going to throw it out there for for those who might be thinking it or at least conceiving the possibility yeah it's, it's not an argument that i would accept um I mean, I mean, certainly there were women, you know, who were happy, who had, 
you know, who had husbands who were very loving and supportive. Um, you know, so, you know, I don't want to say that, um, you know, every woman, you know, you know, had a miserable life, but, you know, obviously there were, um, you know, there were, there were really no checks to things like domestic violence and rape. You know, there was, there were no incentives for men besides, oh, I think that's a good thing to do for them not to be engaging. You know, they, they wouldn't get tried in a court of law if they, if they beat their wives. So, I mean, it was, those were problems that were pretty pervasive. Um, and I mean, if you were also, if you were a, a woman in the working class, um, you probably had a miserable life just because you were doing, doing break, um, back-breaking work, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, um, you know, as anyone in sort of the working class was doing at that time. Um, so, you know, you know, pretty much if, if you were in the middle to upper class, if you managed to get a husband who was nice to you, you'd be happy. Um, but if not, then you weren't happy. And if you were in the working class, then, you know, you were doing so much work that <laughs> you probably died really early or, you know. So I, I, I would say that um, the, the possibilities for happiness were a lot fewer. Constricted. So do you have, and this is putting you on the spot a bit, do you have a story or two that might sort of encapsulate uh, or, or personalize, um, you know, the, the, the plight of women during this time? And or uh, were there any sort of public um, events or situations or happenings, uh, you know, where something really horrible happened to a woman or something terrible that, that helped to galvanize sentiment and uh, inertia or momentum around this uh, first wave of feminism? There, I mean, there really was. I mean, I and I, I wish I knew more. Um, you know, I, I wish I knew more stories of sort of, um, uh, you know, this woman suffered this. But I mean, at the time, um, that was just the status quo. I mean, and there weren't really any. This horrible thing happened to this woman, and so therefore, you know, first wave feminism, um, you know, took off. It, it, it took. From, from the Women's Rights Convention in 1848, um, you know, the, the 19th Amendment, which was the amendment that gave women the right to vote, which sort of, you know, and the, getting the right to vote became sort of the primary focus um, of the first wave. It took, you know, over, over 70 years for that to happen. I mean, it, and, you know, during those 70 years, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were, you know, traveling around the country constantly and publishing and, um, you know, demonstrating. And, you know, there were, it was just constantly, constantly going on. And it still took 70, you know, 72 years um, <laughs> for, them to, for them to get the right to vote. Um, so so um, what can you tell us about, you know, what led to it? Was it just a long, sl- long slog or... Yeah, it was really just a long slog. I mean, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and Susan B. Anthony, um, both of them died right around the turn of the century. But um, from about from about 1850 to about about for to, to really when they died, um, um, did did a number of things. That, I mean, especially Susan B. Anthony because she was not married. Um, she went went around the the country and sort of did a bunch of lectures. And sort of lectured, 
you know, groups of, you know, communities and, and, and um, about the women's rights movement and what they were pushing for. Um, and, and Susan B. Anthony initially sort of did a lot of writing, um, and, and she ended up lecturing um, a little bit later in her life. Um, and and it, what's really interesting is that Susan B. Anthony and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton both died um, before the 19th Amendment was passed. So the thing that they were working the hardest for, they never saw. They, they died. Um, I mean, one thing, I mean, one of the stories as I was reviewing this information that kind of made me really sad um, is um, when, actually, when the 15th Amendment was passed um, in the 1860s that gave um, black men um, the right to vote, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony pushed for the language of that amendment to include women. I mean, they really were like, you know, we need to include women in this. You know, not only should we allow, you know, black men to vote, but we should allow women to vote, and wouldn't that be great? And they, and, and you know, they thought that they would be able to persuade people because of how involved they had been in the abolitionist movement. Um, and... Uh, they were basically told by the, their fellow abolitionists, you know, it's not time yet, you need to wait, this is the, you know, and, and they, they felt very, very betrayed um, and, um, you know, were kind of disheartened for a while. Um, I mean, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um so at some point they they won out and um, women received the right to vote. Was it Woodrow Wilson who was president? Yeah, it was Woodrow Wilson, um, and it was I mean it was kind of a combination. Um, there were a combination of things. Uh, there were there were some there were a couple of different sort of uh, I don't know if factions is quite the right word, but there was sort of a more radical arm of the women's right movement, and and those are the if you've ever heard stories about. Um, sort of the, the kind of the more radical suffragists. These were the people who were chaining themselves to the White House fence and getting arrested. Um, and this happened during Wilf Wilford Woodruff's presidency. I mean, they actually got arrested because he was just having a hard time with them chaining themselves to the White House fence um, every day. I mean, they did it every day. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... and, and at this point, um, Wilford Woodruff was, was sort of under increasing Oh, wait, was, it Wilf was there Wilford Woodruff? W oh, Wilf did I, yeah, did, I say, did I say Wilford yeah. Woodruff? It was Woodrow I Wilson. Have, I probably did. I, <laughs> get the, I get all the W people. I'm sure, I, I, I'm sure I'm the one who said it first. Anyway. No, it's Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> this is Mormon stories, you know. Yeah, yeah. we gotta, we got to get those Mormons in there somehow. <laughs> Some WW guy. What, what do you say? Yeah. Woodrow Wilson, um, and actually what ended up changing his mind um, was, was a woman who was not a member of um, kind of this radical arm, but there was a, a woman um, who was part of sort of the people who were trying to get it through persuasion and, and, and talking to the leaders. And she, she went into his office and said, you know, this really needs to happen, and, and finally persuaded him. Um, but at that point, the, the Senate, like... That week, I think it was within the next few days, the Senate voted against it, and um, I think that was 1918 or 1919. Um, and so they ended up having to wait until after the war was over. And they actually did it through um, ratification in, in a bunch of various states. Um, okay. So victory. Women were yeah. able to vote. 
Yes. So life got better, right? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what really happened, because, I mean, and, and people looking back on first-wave feminism, I mean, the main critique of first-wave feminism um, is, is, yeah, those first-wave feminists worked really hard, and they were really inspirational and, and did a lot of great things, but first-wave feminists sort of pin their hopes on the fact that, you know, if women could vote, they would go and you know, it would you know it would change society and it would change all these other things because women would have a voice in politics and that really didn't end up happening. It it didn't. Women having the right to vote really didn't change a lot of the other sort of fundamental problems in society. Um, those took a lot longer, um, and and you know, that's 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 one of the things that has you know changed in sort of later waves of feminism is sort of a an, a greater attention to um, more issues, kind of a, a recognition that, hey, we shouldn't be just focused on one issue. We need to be focused on a Multiple bunch of fronts. different issues. A multi-front battle. Yeah, a multi-front battle. Do, do, you, do, you, have, do you have a sense for whether there were any Jim Crow-like laws that even though the women technically were allowed to vote, that states did all sorts of things to keep them from being able to do so? Do you have a sense for I, that? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't, I, obviously I'm not in history, yeah. And I'm, you know, I have a familiarity with this history, but not a detailed familiarity with it. No, that's but, good. Um, I, I don't think so, but I may be wrong. So how did so how did we move to a second wave feminism, and what was that all about? Well, second wave feminism. I mean, the origins of second wave feminism um, uh, started sort of post World War II, um, and and what you have is you have a bunch of women. Um, during during World War II, um, women sort of had a lot of um, there was sort of increased freedom for women in society in the sense that you know half of the men in the country were fighting the war in in, in um, Europe, and they had a lot of women who were actually you know going to work in factories and um, you know be, you know members of unions and 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 you know women who were sort of primarily taking care of their families at home and. Um, women sort of had a, a greater sense of sort of power and, and influence. Um, and what happened was that after the war, you know, the men came home. They basically said, women, all of you who are working need to quit your jobs so that these men who are coming home can have jobs. Um, and, and that's sort of when we get sort of the 50s, 1950s Leave It to Beaver family where, you know, the father works and the mother stays home and raises the children and, um, you know, women's lives were sort of very, very constrained to this, this really narrow domestic ideal. And, you know, you, you stayed home, you took care of your children and did nothing else. And many, um, of, many of them had had a taste of, of professional life. Exactly, and many of these women had had a taste of professional life, and so there were many women who were who were sort of dissatisfied with this, um, and and this sort of increased as as, as we as women got into the sixties. Um, a lot of a lot of um, second wave feminists, just kind of like in the first wave, a lot of um, a lot of the women in the women's rights movement came from the abolitionist movement. A lot of women in the second wave movement. Um, came from um, various activist movements from the 60s. So, you know, you have sort of the peace, you know, you have sort of the um, civil rights movement. You know, a lot of, a lot of minority feminists um, were involved 
in in organ, organizing um, in the civil rights movement, for example. And so you had you had women who were sort of part of these these activist activist groups and these women who were feeling sort of dissatisfied with this constrained domestic ideal and and kind of in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, women started saying, hey, um, look, we're, we're not satisfied with so, uh, this, this narrow sphere that we've been given. Um, so, yeah, so why wasn't June Cleaver happy? Why wasn't, uh, you know, Harriet, Avazi and Harriet happy? I mean, it, they had the, the apron, they had the white picket fence, they had the toaster, you know, they had the appliances. Their husband had a good, steady job where he'd get good retirement. Uh, beautiful kids. What's not to like? Well, I mean, I mean, you know, these women basically lost. You know, their identity was only in. You know, they only had an identity in relationship to their family. You know, so if they had, you know, loved, you know, so I think a lot of women sort of. Um, felt unfulfilled. Um, not not that their not that their families not that they didn't love their families or care about their families, um, or you, you know, and, and that they were um, saying domestic life is bad. I hate it. But there there was they felt like there was something missing. Um, you know they they wanted to have goals that they could achieve. You know there were. There were things that they were passionate about that they maybe couldn't pursue, um, and they they were just, you know, they were they felt very constrained that you know you have to be this way and no other way. You you could you you can't pursue these other goals, um, you know. And there there were still a lot of inequalities, um, you know, in society at that point too. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of, you know. Things had started to change because of first wave feminism, but um, you know, women women were still you know more limited in terms of education, um, ability to work, um, you know, things like that. So. Yeah. So, so all the injustices, a lot of the injustices of the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, weren't remedied, and yeah. and um, there was probably a lot of letdown. Uh, people feeling like, hey, we were supposed to have made progress and we haven't. They got a taste of work and then they were removed from it. And uh, probably the commercialism and the materialism and the, you know, the the expansion of subdivisions, etc. Probably just, you know, uh, made people feel a little bit empty. Made them feel a little bit empty. Yeah. Like there was a little bit more. So, um, you you uh, have outlined. Uh, um, a few passages from an essay that you thought that you mentioned you might read to sort of describe what it was like. Yeah, I, there's this really great essay. Um, it's uh, it's from it's, it's the essay is called "A Day Without Feminism," um, and it was published um, in a book called um, "Manifesta: Young Women, Feminism in the Future" um, by uh, by Jennifer Baumgartner and Amy Richards. And this is actually a book about third wave feminism. But they they sort of tell the story of what women's lives were like, sort of before the changes of of second wave feminism. So I thought I'd it's it's a really interesting essay, and I thought I people would be interested in in hearing some passages. Please, from it. please. Um, so they start out and they say, imagine for a day it's still 1970 and women have only the rights they had then. What is it like to be female? Um, 
So they start out, babies born on this day are automatically given their father's name. If no father is listed, illegitimate is likely to be typed on the birth certificate. There are virtually no child care centers, so all preschool children are in the hands of their mothers, a babysitter, or an expensive nursery school. Um, in high school, the principal is a man. Girls have physical education class and play half-court basketball, but not soccer, track, or cross-country, nor do they have any varsity sports teams. The only prestigious physical activity for girls is cheerleading or being a drum majorette. Most girls don't take calculus or physics. They plan the dances and decorate the gym. Even when girls get better grades than their male counterparts, they are half as likely to qualify for a National Merit Scholarship because many of the test questions favor boys. Standardized tests refer to males and male experiences much more to females than their experiences. If a girl, quote, gets herself pregnant, she loses her membership in the National Honor Society, um, which is still true today, and is expelled. Um, the Miss America pageant is the biggest source of scholarship money for women. Women can't be students at Dartmouth, Columbia, Harvard, West Point, Boston College, or the Citadel, among other all-male institutions. Women's colleges are referred to as girls' schools. There are no take-back-the-night marches to protest women's lack of safety after dark, but that's okay because college girls aren't allowed out much after dark anyway. Curfew is likely to be midnight on Saturday and 9 or 10 p.m. the rest of the week. Guys get to stay out as late as they want. Women tend to major in teaching, home economics, English, or maybe a language, a good skill for translating someone else's words. <clears throat> Um, only 44% of women are employed outside of the home, and those women make, on average, 52 cents to the dollar earned by males. Want ads are segregated into help-wanted male and help-wanted female. The female side is preponderantly for secretaries, domestic workers, and other low-wage service jobs, so if you're a female lawyer, you must look under help-wanted male. There are female doctors, but 20 states have only five female gynecologists or fewer. Women workers can be fired or demoted for being pregnant, especially if they are teachers. If a boss demands sex, refers to his female employee exclusively as baby, or says he won't pay her unless she gives him a blowjob, she either has to quit or succumb. No pun, inten no pun intended. Um, women can't be airline pilots. Um, flight attendants are stewardesses, um, waitresses in the sky, and necessarily female. Um, let's see. Uh, women, uh, let's see. Um, except among the very poor or in very rural areas, babies are born in hospitals. There are no certified midwives, and women are knocked out during birth. Most likely, they are also strapped down and lying down, made to have the baby against gravity for the doctor's convenience. If he has a schedule to keep, the likelihood of a caesarean is also very high. Um, the women's health movement doesn't exist. If a woman goes under the knife to, to see if she has breast cancer, the surgeon won't wake her up to consult about her options before performing a halsted mastectomy, a disfiguring radical procedure in which the breast, the muscle wall, and the nodes under the arm right down to the bone are removed. She'll just wake up and find that the choice has been made for her. So those are some passages from the. So how exactly does one get herself pregnant? 
Well, I think <laughs> I think there's another person involved, but it, at this point in time, they it, she was the one that was getting herself pregnant, and she was uh, <laughs> that's how it was talked about. Well, that's a, you know that I, that's an excellent essay that really that really does drive it home and, and help illustrate how things were. Now, let's just ask the same question we asked before. Um, you know, was it really that bad? Yeah, it, it really. I mean. It really was. I mean, certainly, you know, as you know, as with the first wave feminists, there were there were places, you know, there were probably cities and places in the country um, where it were where it was better or worse. Um, but you know, this is this is very typical. This is this is sort of a, a typical experience. Um, you know, you know, you read about. Um, you know the the women just sort of waking up to find that this radical medical procedure has been done on her, and certainly that wasn't done. I'm sure it wasn't done in all cases, but it happened very you know very frequently. I mean there were there were minority women at this point in time. <coughs> I mean one of one of the things that I actually learned teaching women's studies, there were minority women um, even up into you know even up to the 60s and 70s. Who would go in to the doctor for just you know routine checkups and medic you know um, or other other medical procedures and would they would the doctors would sterilize them um, without the women's knowledge. Mm. Um, oh. Yeah, it, it's just I I found out about this and was just horrified that that this was going on. You know these these women would be sterilized without even being told what was going on. Um, uh, they're just—they're kind of objects. Women are kind yeah. of objectified to to a high degree. Very much. So, what did the what what did second wave feminists do? How did they how did they make progress? Well, second wave feminists looked at sort of um, sort of a lot. You know, a lot of the issues that 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 essay points. You know, obviously, you when I read that essay, you know, when I read it, you say, oh, you know, things are different today. That's not the case. And, you know, a lot of those things have changed. Um, and that's really, to a large extent, because of second-wave feminists. Um, second-wave feminists really um, focused on a lot of <coughs> sort of institutional changes. They really pushed um, women who wanted to work um, to go to, into the workforce. They pushed for, you know, equal pay and equal opportunity in the workforce. Um, they they pushed um, one of the things that was uh, um, passed by um, that that passed during second wave feminism was was Title IX, um, which for most people I, when you, they hear Title IX they think of sports in college like you know if there's a men's you know football team there has to be a women's softball team or whatever um, but Title IX is actually a really um, it, it guarantees educational equality for men and women across the spectrum. Like, it's not just about sports. It's about um, having equal opportunity um, in higher education. Um, and that, that was, Title IX was passed because of efforts by second-wave feminists. Um, obviously, women's health care is vastly better. Um, you know, there are, women are in less, to a much less extent, um, you know, are taken advantage of in in doctors' offices. They have a lot more say in the medical procedures. 
you know, you know, women these days when they give birth um, can choose how they want to give birth and, you know, whether they want pain medication or not, um, you know, how they want to, you know, whether they want to lie down or, or squat or, you know, whatever. You know, women have a lot more say in their health decisions. Right. Um, and, and, and additionally, you know, doctors used to not do research, medical research on women and women's health concerns. You know, so there was a lot that was just unknown about the various, you know, the, the fact that, you know, women, when they, they have heart disease, um, have very different symptoms than men do. And for a long time, that wasn't acknowledged and, and women's heart disease wasn't even studied. <clears throat> and, and because of second wave feminism, femi- you know, there's a lot more research being done into the, the medical issues that, that women face. Um, you know, another another big thing that the second wave feminists did were um, things like domestic violence and rape um, became issues that people actually talked about and became things that became, you know, there, there were laws where those were, you know, against the law and people would get in trouble for doing that kind of thing. I mean, it was really um, second wave feminists that sort of pushed, um, you know, pushed for action on domestic violence and rape um, and, you know, started shelters for, for women who, who had to leave situations, you know, where they were getting battered by husbands. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's just a handful. I mean, there, there are certainly more changes, but, you know, those are some of the big changes that happened because second-wave feminists were sort of, you know, working on lobbying, mm. lobbying for laws to be changed, you know, entering the workforce and demanding that they, you know, receive equal attention. Um, you know, like like I said, it was sort of a, a like we said, it was sort of a multi front, multi front battle. Um, and, and was was the ERA part of second wave feminism? Yes, the ERA was part of second wave feminism, um, which um, obviously did not did not pass. Um, but it, it was one of the things that second wave feminists worked on um, because they thought that the Equal Rights Amendment would would give them, um, you know, when they were fighting these battles, for example, for equal pay, for equal work, um, they if they had the, you know, they would be able to use the Equal Rights Amendment to say, look, um, this, this Equal Rights Amendment says that, you know, says that we need to be treated equally and they would have then um, a legal basis to appeal um, problems, you know, with, with unequal pay, you know, in the court system, for example. You know, that was one of, one of the many motivations for, for, their, for their wanting to pass the ERA. Right. So uh, a question just occurred to me that I think will be a good segue into our third, um, our third segment, which is third-wave feminism, and, and, and we could talk about backlash a bit, but maybe this will lead into it. You know, when you think about uh, when you think about the abolitionist movement, uh-huh. you know, we're all taught about you know men like Frederick Douglass, who were these uh, high character, um, courageous, educated men who who fought for truth and justice and and helped uh, a struggling movement achieve success. And when you think about the civil rights movement, immediately Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. Uh, you know, or Cesar Chavez sort of uh, pop up 
to mind and you think, whoa, what noble and great men uh, uh-huh. these were who helped lead us. Yeah. But, if, but if we were to, you know, do a little survey of who are the, who are the wonderful leaders of, uh, you know, the women's rights, you know, people would probably think, oh, I don't know, Betsy Ross or, you know, no one would know Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Uh, they might know Susan B. Anthony just because she had a, a dollar named after her, a, a, you know, a, a while back. Um, and if you look at second wave feminism, I imagine people might know who they are, but they're not going to admire them. Yeah, it's like who is it? Patricia Ireland? Who who would have been the, the figure? Gloria Steinem, Gloria Steinem or Betty Friedan or two of the two of the big names. And you know, you say those names, and people are like, "Wow!" Yeah, you it's know. like sneering derision. Exactly. So they're either unknown. Or derided. So, exactly. you know, was there backlash from first and second wave feminism? And if so, how do we explain the fact that we're not only educated about the leaders of the movement, but, but honor them and respect them instead of either not know them or sneer at them? What happened? Well, there definitely was backlash. Um, and I would say this is true among women. I would say among women, what I just said would be as true as among men. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. I I, there is there is a there is a huge amount of backlash and and this I mean this this happened I really strongly um, in the eighties. Um, a really good book um, to read on this phenomenon is a is a book by Susan Faludi, which is actually called Backlash. Um, and and what happened in the eighties um, is that um, you know a lot of changes had been made um, by the eighties. But what happened was that, that Reagan came into power, um, and so kind of a, there was kind of a more conservative regime, um, a, a more con- you know, in charge of the country that were a little bit suspicious of the feminists because the feminists are the people who are sort of saying we need change, we need change, we need to push for change, you know, and and that that makes you know, a lot of people uneasy. Um, and you know, especially you know, conservatives tend to like the status quo. Um, and, and want things to sort of stay the same. And, and so, um, you know, there's, there's conservatives who are sort of in power in the country, um, and they sort of started resisting um, the changes that the, that the feminists were trying to push for. Um, you know, for example, the ERA um, wasn't passed. Um, the, there was an Office of Domestic Violence, which um, opened in, like, 1979, and it was closed. Um, two years later, um, hmm. but I think what's what's even more interesting than sort of sort of this resistance to sort of the institutional changes is the way that feminism started getting talked about in the 1980s. I mean, up to that point, people were sort of suspicious of the feminists because they were very radical. But I think it was really in the 80s that that feminism sort of got to be sort of the the bad word. That it is today, um, and I mean, what really ended up happening was that people in the in the eighties started saying women aren't any happier. You know, we've had this women's rights movement, and la la la. You know, things have changed, things are great, and women aren't any happier. You know, we have women who are going to work and then coming home to their children, and they're completely stressed out. And um, what ended up happening was that a lot of people blamed the feminists. They sort of said. Um, you know, they they sort of blamed women's unhappiness on the fact that women now had more choices and more equality and more freedom, which was just crazy. Um, 
Um, but that's really, um, a, there was a large, um, um, there were a lot of people in the 80s who were making that argument. Um, but, it, I mean, if you really um, go back and look, you know, a lot of these women were unhappy because things weren't, you know, yes, there had been changes, but there were still a lot of things that hadn't changed. I mean, for example, women who um, went into the workforce, you know, who started working, um, most for the most part, their husbands would not do any of the domestic work at home because they had not ever been expected to do that. So these women would go and work, um, you know, a part-time job or a full-time job, and then they'd have to come home and do all of the housework. Um, and, of course, um, a woman having to to work during the day and then coming home and doing all of the housework and taking care of the children without a whole lot of help from her husband, she's going to be unhappy. Um, but feminists, feminists sort of got blamed for this. Um, and it, it's, I think it's really at this point that um, feminism sort of, you know, I, people were probably, I'm sure, were suspicious of the feminists before then, but feminists, Feminism got, got um, I think, wrongly criticized for, for a lot of things and got turned into a, um, got blamed for a lot of things that it, that it shouldn't have gotten blamed for, um, so, you know, which is not to say it's a perfect movement and it, it had no flaws, but. So let's play, let's play devil's advocate for a second. Now I'll sort okay. of, put, I'll put on my LDS uh, cloak and I'll say, uh, you know the families. Families are the most important thing uh, in, in on the planet. No success can compensate for failure in the home. Uh, maybe studies have been done that show that if a parent uh, stays home and is able to nurture and take care of the kids, that the kids do better. Everyone knows about you know d- dual income families where the kids are raised in daycare, get diseases, are, are mistreated by their daycare handlers. Uh, everyone's stressed out. Women are feel more independent, and so maybe there's more promiscuity because they have more exposure to the men. Maybe um, maybe there's more divorce because women don't feel as uh, as dependent on the men, or maybe the men lose their self esteem because they say, "What's my role if the women are making money?" And so, uh, in the end, the family breaks down. People start having less children. The children are raised in daycare instead of in a nurturing home. Uh, women aren't as happy, maybe anyway, and uh, uh, and and then if you even look at just the status of of women, I, you know, I I have to be honest, and I'm not advocating this position. I just want you to speak to the people who might be having these thoughts, but I'm going to advocate for them. And then as an ancillary, you know, I've met a lot of women who who worked into their late 30s or 40s, following the feminist sort of dream, but then they realized that work wasn't what they thought it was that that the fulfillment that they thought they were going to achieve in the workplace, they didn't achieve. Um, and then they tried to have kids, but they tried to have it late and they weren't able to have kids, you know, and they, and they ended up, uh, you know, let's just be, just be irresponsible and say they ended up spinsters and sad and lonely wondering why did I try and become a man and sell out, uh, my womanhood and become, uh, you know, more like men when, when the, when the fulfillment really was, in, in sort of the, the domestic traditional household. So those are, those are sort of two questions. It's probably 15 questions, but it's, <laughs> you know, how would you respond to those, th- those two strains of thought? Well, I, mean, I, I would say that I, I do think, um, I mean, I do think that second wave feminism 
um, really did push a lot of women to go into the workforce. And, and there were women who ended up there who ended up being unhappy about it. Um, but, you know, feminism has changed since then. You know, if, if you talk to any feminist today, um, you know, feminists will say, you know, feminists, you know, all of the feminists I know will talk about the respect that we need to have for um, the choices that women make in terms of their family and that we need, you know, for women who choose to stay at home and, um, you know, raise their children, that, that that needs to be something that is valued. Um, because, I mean, one of the things that, that feminism, um, one of the arguments that feminism does make is that, women, you know, work that has been sort of traditionally women's work is something that hasn't been valued. Um, you know, women have, you know, traditionally been the ones staying at home and taking care of the children, and, and that's something that, you know, women really haven't gotten a lot of recognition for. And, um, you know, most of the feminists I know and that I encounter and talk with will say, you know, yeah, we need to look at at this issue of motherhood and, and valuing the work that, that women do in, in their daily lives. So I think, you know, feminism has really changed since, since second wave, changed since the second wave. Um, and, and I think second wave feminism, you know, while there were some women who got out into the workforce and, and maybe were unhappy and unfulfilled, um, there were a lot of women who were being, who really wanted that, who really wanted to, pursue a job or, or like me, wanted to pursue, um, a, you know, a graduate, a graduate education and um, were held back because their families thought that wasn't proper for women to do. And um, second wave feminism really made it possible for the women who want to do those kinds of things for that to be more broadly accepted. Um, so I, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and I, you know, I, you know, it sounds you like know, it's, it's all about liberty and freedom, basically, an option. Yeah, yeah. And ju it just um, because just because options are available doesn't mean that, that traditional families or traditional roles even have to be eroded. Uh, it's just nice that there be a choice. Exactly. So that, so that, for example, if a woman can't have kids or can't get married or doesn't want to get married or just happens to really uh, value uh, other options, that those options are, are available as a as a core value of freedom and, exactly, and, and exactly. Uh, liberty. Exactly. And and it's so it's so silly that we go, Oh, okay, yeah, I guess women do deserve liberty and freedom. <laughs> right? But I mean that's yeah. kind of what, what someone might have to arrive at. Yeah. I guess they do deserve that right to choose, don't they? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Um so what 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 else is third wave feminism about? Um, well, third wave, third wave feminism, um, I mean, that's sort of one of the focuses of, of, of third wave feminism is, is looking back at sort of the limits of second wave feminism and saying, you know, hey, look, um, you know, the, the second wave feminists said this, you know, kind of like they pushed women into the workforce maybe a little too strongly, but, you know, we, we want to sort of value um, more, all the choices that women make. Um, one of the things that third wave feminism is also really focused on is um, uh, is, is kind of cultural issues, um, like issues about like how women are represented in the media in really problematic ways. 
that's been a huge focus of third wave feminism. You know, the you know advertising and you know how women are sort of represented as really thin and and as objects. And um, you know, third wave feminists are really interested in that and trying to say, look, this is this is a, the way we're representing women in the media is a, is a huge problem. And um, you know, related issues like women and you know eating disorders that have sort of arisen as kind of related to. Um, these media issues um, has, has been an increasing focus of third-wave feminism. And third-wave feminism is also still working on a lot of the goals of second-wave feminism. Um, you know, women still aren't, you know, equally represented in the workforce. Um, you know, we still haven't had a woman president. Um, so there, there's still a lot of the goals of, of second, you know, uh, you know, women are still working to eliminate domestic violence and rape. Um, you know, so there are a lot of goals of second wave feminism that third wave feminists are still working on. So. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, a, a woman president in the United States. I think a lot of Americans might pat themselves on the back to say they're quite progressive when it comes to so social or cultural things, but there are probably ten or fifteen countries that have had female heads of state, including mm-hmm. is Israel, uh, you know, India, Pakistan, uh, Great Britain. Yeah, I mean, there are countries, yeah, like, I mean, you've, you've named a few, like, you know, there, there are countries, like, um, that in, in most, in terms of social, progress, you know, social progressiveness, um, we tend to think, hey, in the United States, we're ahead of them, but yet these other countries have had a, a female president or prime minister, and um, it's uh, kind of telling, I think. <laughs> we even like to say that Muslims don't, don't treat women well, but... I think Muslims have uh, have had more than five female heads of state in in, in countries predominated predominantly Muslim. Uh, that was a, a quote that I heard the other day. That okay, that yeah, I don't know the number. I mean, I know that Indonesia either currently has yeah, a yeah. Um, female president or just had. Um, yeah. I don't know the exact statistics either, but so um, so you you teach uh, women's studies. You probably have a. I should say one thing first. I wonder if the third ways third wave feminists feel a little bit uh, disheartened, because as you look at the way uh, culture in the United States has turned, you look at you look at the Britney Spears and the Paris Hilton phenomenon. You know, uh, you look at uh, the prevalence of pornography now, uh, of porn stars sort of almost becoming mainstream. Eating disorders are rampant. Magazine covers are more scantily clad uh, and objectifying than ever. Uh, I, I'm not sure they're winning that battle. I'm not. I'm not sure they are either. But um, I mean, one thing I do love about feminism is uh, one of one of the mottos of of, of second wave feminism is um, the personal is political. Um, so one thing that second wave feminism did and that third wave feminism has sort of continued is, um, you know, a lot of these things like, you know, changing the media seems like this huge impossible goal and, you know, we don't really seem to be making a whole lot of progress. Um, but, you know, in our, in our daily interactions, in the way that we interact with people every day, um, we have um, interactions with people or things that happen to us that where we can be, we can stand up for sort of feminist values. You know, if, you know, if someone's getting sexually harassed at work, people can, 
either if you're being harassed or someone you know is being harassed, standing up and saying this is not acceptable and, and you know, trying to ensure that this person is punished or, um, you know, just, just, in, just on a small day-to-day basis, um, you can have small victories. And, and I think that's one way that um, I, certainly I have, you know, don't get disheartened. And I think feminists in general don't just get disheartened because, you know, when they have interactions where they, you know, where they try and make a small change in their life and they see something happen, they think, okay, you know, there are these big, huge things that we're trying to do that may be overwhelming, but I can affect things on a small scale and that's, that's activism and that's making change. Um, yeah. and, and that's actually one of the things that I, we talk about in, my, in, in um, our women's studies classes. Because, you know, we have a lot of students who come in. Um, and I mean, one of my favorite lines is, the, like, you get a lot of students who are doing the, I'm not a feminist, but. <laughs> um, and then what do they say? What do they say after the but? But I'm for women's equality, but <laughs> I... <laughs> Uh, but I think women should have more rights, but I think these <laughs> things that feminists are fighting for are good. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, even even if students don't, you know, we I'm okay if students don't walk out of, out of women's studies classes and say, yes, I'm a feminist and I'm going to, you know, go be a feminist. But if the students come out of the class and say, you know what, I think, you know, domestic violence is a bad thing, and I'm going to go um, volunteer at a local shelter um, in order to support these women who are who are there. Or you know, or if they say, um, you know, you know, or, or you know, just things like that. Even if they don't identify as a feminist, then I feel like you know they're going to make the world a better place for women. Um, so that's good. Um, and and that's one of the things we really talk about in the classes. Um, we, we spend a lot of time sort of talking about a broad range of issues and what's going on, and, and you know, we, you know, the students do get disheartened sometimes, you know, because we talk about things like, like rape and eating disorders, and there are some weeks where um, you just sort of feel the energy sort of deflating out of the class as, 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 as they talk about these really awful things, and, you know, we constantly have to say, okay, now what, what can we do about this? What small change can we go make in our own life to, to, to sort of address these issues? Um, so what, what, what are some things that our audience can do to help uh, make some of those small steps? Do you have any, any recommendations or tips? Well, I, I, you know, it's, it, I mean, what I would tell people to do is... Um, you know, find find and find issues that are important to you, um, and you know, if it's you know, if it's like I, you know, the example I gave before, if you know, if domestic violence is is something that you're saying, you know, if that you want to say, you know, this is unacceptable, you know, you can go work at a volunteer, you, know, you can go volunteer, you know, at a shelter. Um, small things like that. But, you know, it can just be in, you know, it can just be in terms of, you know, educating people you know on um, on on women's issues or... Um, maybe not uh, maybe not going to the movies or, or watching the TV shows that, that objectify women. Yeah, know, exactly. Or, or, you know, if, you know, women, you know, who are mothers, for example 
can can you know talk to their daughters about um, the problems in the media, and you know, and you know, obviously we critique the media as Mormons in terms of you know there's a lot of promiscuity and and stuff like that, but you know, also having you know conversations with their daughters about about how this how this media imagery makes women feel and and why that's a problem and and trying to um, help their their daughters understand that you know their worth is not determined by how they look. I mean that's that's a, that's a great feminist thing to do. Um, so so maybe watch your discourse at home. Maybe you know don't focus on shopping with your daughters and that they look cute all the time and that they uh, make themselves look pretty for the boys. Um, don't always comment about whether someone's fat or heavy or not that cute because it sends a message to the kids that that um, that's that's where their value lies as well. Exactly, by and and by you know you can you, you know encouraging encouraging daughters or nieces or or. Um, whoever to 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 see their value not in what they look like, but in in you know in doing well in school or having you know being passionate about art or um, you know the the you know the person that they are. Um, you know, I mean, that's one thing that's great about the gospel is that we recognize that we're children of of God, um, and that's where our value comes from, not from um, these sort of you know how we look. Um, but I, I still think that even even though we know that that you know we sort of know who we are, we still <laughs> get caught up in you know I have to go to church and I have to look a certain way and I have to you know you know appear you know you know women you know women in the church still worry about their weight and and diet and and make their daughters anxious about um, how they look and and um, you know we, we still face those problems. And, and you know that that's you know addressing those things is, is something that that is, is a is a feminist thing to do. So um, this has been wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I thought of a question that we might close with. Um, we'll talk about this in the in the series to come. But since I have you here, talk a little bit about um, maybe you know what you love about being a woman in in the LDS Church and. You know what? What's been really reaffirming, or uh, faith promoting, or you know, making you feel really good uh, about your church affiliation and being a woman? And then, if you have maybe times when you struggle or things, things that that grate on your nerves at times, you know, what what do you do, or what are some coping mechanisms you use in the in the hard times uh, to okay. to keep us to keep a chin up and to keep uh, the the perspective and the end goal in sight. Okay. Um, well, being a woman in the church, um, this is actually something that I've struggled with um, just because in a lot of ways I sort of haven't fit the norm. I've always been a little bit strange. Um, you know, I wanted to go to to school and get a graduate degree when all, you know, when all my friends were sort of talking about going to BYU and getting married. Um, I was like, I want to go to, you know, Harvard or what, whatever to, to get this great degree. And um, so, I mean, I, I think what, I, what I'd have to say about being a woman in the church is a lot of my, my 
positive experiences of the church are just sort of probably less about being a woman and just more about positive experiences in the church. Right. Um, you know, realizing, you know, the, a lot of the teaching, you know, realizing that I am the child of God and, and that that's affirming. And um, um, it's, it's not necessarily about being a woman, um, but it, you know, it is about being a child of God. And um, um, so I, I think a lot of my, my positive experiences in the church are probably more... Gender neutral. Probably more gender neutral than they are... Um, and they are strictly strictly gendered um, experiences. Um, though, though, I mean, I have certainly, you know, met fellow. I mean, I have met fellow women um, in the church. You know, especially I when I was a um, when I was an, under, an undergrad and sort of going through my crisis. You know, I met um, you know other women who were sort of pursuing graduate degrees who were really inspirational to me. I and mean, I was able to really get to know them and talk to them. And the way our church is structured, um, you know, there's there's Relief Society where you can, um, and visiting teaching where you can sort of associate with women. And I was able to to get to know these women a little better. So so that was that was a positive experience. But by far, it's sort of been more of a, a gender neutral, a gender neutral positive experience. Right. Um, as for how I deal with frustration, um, I mean, when it when it comes to um, dealing with frustration, sort of in the church, um, a, a lot of it just sort of goes back to my faith in and my relationship with God. Um, I, you know, this is these are issues that I really struggle with a lot. Um, as I'm sure probably will come up in later episodes, there there is a lot of tension between Mormonism and feminism. Um, that just you know, even though I think they can be compatible, um, there is sort of an inherent tension there that I don't know will ever go away. Um, and it's it's a struggle to sort of reconcile those things. But things being you know, this is going to happen, or you know, any revelatory answers that have answered my questions. But I have found a certain amount of peace from doing that. Um, and when it comes to sort of more broadly, when it comes to sort of getting discouraged about um, women's issues at large, you know, when I see the media and when I see things like, you know, women who have to deal with things like domestic violence and rape and, and you know, feeling overwhelmed by all of these big issues that, you know, are only changing only very slowly. Um, you know, I really... I go back to trying to focus, again, on, on sort of the small changes that I see, you know, in my own life and, and the small changes that I can sort of enact. And I, I, I really found a lot of um, fulfillment for, from actually teaching women's studies. You know, when talking, you know, talking to students and, and having them, um, you know, get excited about the changes that they can make and, and see them understand about how to better women's lives and, and um, you know, understand how to do that better. That that gives me a lot of fulfillment, too. So. And when you think about uh, any tension that there might be between feminism and the church, you could probably make a pretty good argument that uh, your strain or your, your approach to feminism is 100% 
gospel or even Christ compatible. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's definitely Christ compatible, but I mean, feminism um, pushes for social changes. Um, you know, you know, uh, you know, a lot of feminists look at the LDS Church and say this is a patriarchal organization. The men are in charge. The women don't have any voice. Um, and, and while I may not necessarily agree with all feminist critiques of the church, um, I, I do think that there are, um, you know, in, inequalities in the church that we haven't really fully addressed. Um, that, and I don't know what the answers to that are, but I, there are ways in which I have struggled in the church. And um, so I, I, I think that... Um, you know, I think that feminism can be compatible with the gospel, but I think that a lot of times feminists want changes that um, kind of more traditional Mormons are going to be like, ah, those are not changes that we want to have made. Um, and feminists in the church are going to have to kind of negotiate that and figure out how to deal with that. Do you have any, just to close, do you have any positive role models for, for feminism in the church at all? scholars or, you know, figureheads or leaders? Are, are there any public females in the church that you feel like uh, really represent your beliefs and thoughts well? Um, I, I really like um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Um, and I, I really like the way in which she sort of managed to, I mean, she's definitely a feminist and, and not, you know, in a, you know, you know, we need to work for feminist goals. We need to eliminate inequality. And there's a certain way in which she's dissatisfied with the with the church. But at the same time, she's really trying to combine that with with being, you know, a member of the church and being a faithful member and um, figuring out, trying to figure out how to balance that, which, you know, which is what I'm trying to do. Um, so I, I, I would have to say her. And, and I've seen, you know, I've had women kind of in my more... Um, in my own life that I've just sort of met um, who aren't, you know, well-known, um, who have, you know, been doing doing the same kind of thing that I'm certainly inspired by. Any good any good blogs uh, or websites people can go to to, uh, to commune? Um, well, aside from our blog, I mean, the, the, biggest, the biggest feminist blog is Feminist Mormon Housewives. Um, and it's it's a huge I and mean, there's there are lots of there's lots of people there and you know if you're less academic and sort of you know you know a lot of the bloggers there are women who are feminists but you know living the domestic life you know they're they're stay at home mothers raising children I mean the person who started the blog um, that's what she does um, and um, so that's a great place to go and the, and the other kind of feminist blog in the blogger knackle is Exponent Two. Um, what's the url what's the url for that um i am i put you on the spot it's okay just people can look for exponent two or women's exponent two blog and they'll find it in google i'm sure yeah i'm sure if they if they went to it went to google and typed in exponent two and blog that it would that it would pop up okay okay well, fantastic. Well, uh, Seraphine, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on Mormon Stories, for sharing with us this uh, contextual historical overview. A scaffolding, a historical scaffolding, 
is critical for providing people with the framework that they need to start understanding their history uh, better. And you've done a great job at, at providing us with that scaffolding. Uh, so again, uh, I want to plug your blog, Zelophehad's Daughters. That's Z-E-L-O-P-H-E-H-A-D-S daughters.com. Oh, that's really great. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at a piece of paper. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, but Seraphine, thank you so much for coming on Mormon Stories. And uh, congratulations and good luck to you in your studies uh, and in your advocacy for equality and, and goodness uh, for women. Well, well, thank you for allowing me to do this. Um, I've appreciated the chance to talk about, about these issues. So, Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thanks again for joining us on Mormon Stories Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To comment on this episode or on any of our past episodes, please email us at mormonstories at gmail.com or visit us on the blog mormonstories.org. We'd also like to take the time to thank my daughter Anna for providing us with the bumper music. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to speak again with you soon.